but how produced we know not. Unquote. Little better is Matthew Henry's These had their hearing imposed upon them. Unquote. There was neither illusion nor imposition. It does not say the Lord made them to hear a noise like as of chariots and horses, but the actual thing itself. That is to say, he so attuned their auditory nerves that they registered the sound of what previously was inaudible to them. This is but another instance of how we create our own difficulties when reading the word through failing to attend closely unto exactly what is said. If we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we should have no difficulty in ascertaining the precise means used on this occasion. On a previous one, God had employed horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Chapter 6.17 And, as we showed, the reference there was to angelic beings. Then why not the same here? There God opened the eyes of the young man in order to see them. Here he opened the ears of the Syrians to hear them. It may well be that in their original condition our first parents were capacitated to both see and hear celestial beings. But the fall impaired those as well as all their faculties, the clairvoyance and clairaudience of spiritist mediums being the devil's imitation of man's original powers. That the Syrians, unregenerate idolaters, misinterpreted what they heard is only to be expected as those who heard the father speaking to his son said it thundered John 12:29 and those who accompanied Saul heard the voice which spake to him Acts 9:7 but heard not the voice Acts 22:9 distinguished not the words Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Verse 7. How true it is that the wicked flee when no man pursueth, supposing that a more formidable force had come to the relief of the besieged Samaritans, the Syrians, were filled with consternation and at once abandoned their well-provisioned camp. So thoroughly panic-stricken were they that they left their horses which had accelerated their flight. How easily can the Lord make the heart of the stoutest to quake, and how vain and mad a thing it is for thee to defy him. Can thine heart endure, or can thine hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it, and will do it. Ezekiel 22:14. Then throw down the weapons of your warfare against him, and make your peace with him now. Chapter 26 Fifteenth Miracle 
In continuing our contemplation of this miracle, let us now pause and admire the marvel of it. Ben-Hadad had become dissatisfied with the results achieved by his marauding bands, and gathering together the whole of his armed forces, determined to reduce Samaria to utter helplessness. Throwing a powerful force around their capital, he sought to bring its inhabitants to complete starvation by means of a protracted siege. In order to carry out his scheme, he had brought with his army large supplies of food and clothing so that they might be in comfort while they waited for the stores of his victim to give out. How nearly his plan succeeded we have seen. The Samaritans were reduced to the most desperate straits in an effort to keep life in their bodies. Yet as Thomas Scott pointed out, in extreme distress, unexpected relief is often preparing and Whatever unbelievers may imagine, it is not in vain to wait for the Lord, how long soever he seems to delay his coming. End of quote. But in the instance now before us, there is not a word to indicate that the Samaritans had been crying unto the Lord and looking to him for relief. They had openly turned away from him and were worshipping idols. This it is which renders the more noteworthy the act of Jehovah on this occasion. He was found of them that sought him not. Isaiah 65.1 He showed himself strong on the behalf of a people who had grievously despised and insulted him, but where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. It was the Most High acting in His absolute sovereignty, having mercy on whom He pleased to have mercy, and showing favor unto those who not only had no claim thereto, but who deserved naught but unsparing judgment at His hands. The means which the Lord used on this occasion was as remarkable as the exercise of his distinguishing mercy. He was pleased to use the stores of the Syrians, their deadly enemies, to feed the famished Samaritans. Out of the eater came forth meat. Judges 14.14 Thus were the wise taken in their own craftiness. Four lepers outside Samaria's gates said, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Second Kings 7, 3 and 4 Observe how God wrought. It was not by an audible voice that he bade these lepers act. Not such are the mysterious but perfect workings of providence. It is by means of a secret and imperceptible impulse from him 
through the process of natural laws that God usually works in men both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Those lepers acted quite freely of their own volition in response to simple but obvious thoughts on their situation and followed the dictates of common sense and the impulse of self-preservation. Mark, we are not here attempting to philosophize or explain the conjunction between the natural and the supernatural, but merely calling attention to what lies on the surface of our narrative and which is recorded for our instruction. When the four lepers arrived at the enemy's camp, they found it to be deserted, for the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Verses 6 and 7. That was indeed the employment of the supernatural, something over and above the ordinary workings of providence. For though the Syrians misinterpreted the sound, we believe, as stated in our last, that what they heard was the movement of angelic horses and chariots. Compare chapter 6, verse 17 the Lord allowing their ears to register what normally would have been inaudible to them. Yet even here there was a blending of the supernatural with the natural. Those celestial beings did not slay the Syrians, but only terrified them by the noise which they made. It may not so strike the hearer, but what most impresses the writer in connection with this incident is the remarkable blending together of the supernatural and the natural, the operations of God and the actions of men, and the light this casts on the workings of divine providence. Perhaps that would be made plainer by first reading verses 6 and 7, where we have recorded the miracle itself and the startling effect which it had upon the Syrian. And then verse 5, where we are told of the action of these four which led to their discovery of a miracle being wrought, thereby preparing the way for all that follows. Here we have another illustration of what we have frequently pointed out, namely that when God works, he does so at both ends of the line, here openly at one end and secretly at the other. Had not the lepers actually journeyed to the Syrians' camp, those in Samaria had remained in ignorance that food was to be had. God therefore moved those lepers to go there, yet how naturally he wrought. They were not conscious that he had given them a secret inclination to move, nor had they any inkling of the miracle, as their words in verse 4 make clear. 
And when the lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Verse 8. Solemn indeed is this, first from the negative side. There was no recognition of the divine hand, no awesome exclamation, What hath God wrought? No bowing before Him in thanksgiving for such a signal favor. They conducted themselves like infidels, accepting the mercies of heaven as a mere matter of course. And remember, they were lepers. Even such an infliction had not turned their hearts unto the Lord. Be not surprised, then, that those whose homes are destroyed and whose bodies are injured by the bombs are not brought to repentance thereby. But positively, after satisfying their hunger, they plundered the Syrian tents. Verily, there is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9 There was looting then as there is now, though theirs was not nearly so despicable and dastardly as what is now so common in this country. And why is it that there is no new thing under the sun? Because as in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. Proverbs 27.19 Whether he be a man living in centuries B.C. or A.D., whether he be civilized or uncivilized, his heart is depraved. Civilization effects no change within any person, for civilization, not to be confused with morality and common decency, is but a veneer from without. But to return to our passage, the lepers enriching themselves from the spoil of the Syrians did not contribute unto the relief of the starving Samaritans, and that was what Jehovah had promised. Mark then the sequel. Then they said one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. Verse 9 The divine design of mercy unto the starving city was not to be thwarted by the greed of these lepers, for his counsel must stand. Yet note how it was now effected. As God had wrought secretly in those lepers in verses 3 and 4, so again did he now. There it was by an impulse upon their instinct of self-preservation. Here it was upon their conscience. Yet observe how conscience acts in the unregenerate, producing not horror and anguish and having offended a gracious God, but causing fear of the consequences. This is made clearer by the marginal rendering. 
if we tarry till the morning light, we shall find punishment. But unless God had wrought secretly upon them, they too had been like our own generation, from whom His restraining hand is removed, and who are given up to their own heart's lusts, utterly reckless and regardless of consequences. In this instance, in order to the carrying out of his benevolent purpose, God put a measure of fear upon these lepers and caused them to realize that not only were they playing an ignoble part, but were likely to swiftly be smitten by his wrath if they failed to announce the good news to their famished fellows. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. Here, as everywhere, we need to be much on our guard against making a misapplication of Scripture. It is so easy to read our own thoughts into the Word and thus find what we are looking for. Those who are so enthusiastic in urging young believers to become evangelists by preaching the gospel to all and sundry would likely find in this verse what they considered was a striking passage on which to base an address on the necessity of personal work, yet it would be an altogether unwarranted use to make of it. This verse is very far from teaching by typical implication that it is the duty of every Christian to announce the good tidings to all they contact. Holy Writ does not contradict itself, and none other than the Lord Jesus has expressly bidden us, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Matthew 7, 6 That command is designed to bridle the restless energy of the flesh. It was unto those who had been prepared for those good tidings who would welcome them. These lepers went forth, namely, to those who were fully conscious of their starving condition. There is a radical difference between those who are lovers of pleasure and satisfied with what they find therein, and the ones who have discovered the emptiness of such things and are deeply concerned about their eternal welfare. And there should be an equally radical difference in the way we deal with and speak to each of them. The gospel would not be good tidings to the former, but would be trodden beneath their feet if offered to them. Yet it is likely to be welcomed by the latter, and if we unmistakably meet with the latter, it would be sinful for us to remain selfishly silent. So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. 2 Kings 7.10 Not being permitted to enter the city, the four lepers called out to those who were keeping watch at its gate. 
They announced the good news in plain and simple language and then left the issue within. The chief porter did not receive the strange tidings with incredulity, but he called the subordinate porters, and while he remained at his post of duty, they told it to the king's house within. Verse 11, middle of the night though it was. Here too we may perceive the continued, the secret workings of the Lord. He it was who caused the porter to give heed to the message he had just heard. Altogether unexpected as it must have been, too good to be true as it would have sounded, yet he was unknown to himself divinely inclined to credit the glad tidings and promptly acquaint his royal master with the same. Yet the porter acted quite freely and discharged his personal responsibility. How wondrous are the ways of him with whom we have to do! And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry, therefore they are gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Verse 12 The king's reaction to the good news was thoroughly characteristic of him, being all of a piece with everything else recorded of him. Instead of expressing gratitude at the glad tidings, he voiced his skepticism. Instead of perceiving the gracious hand of God, he suspected his enemies of laying a subtle snare. Perhaps some may be inclined to say it was very natural for Jehoram to argue thus. The king was acting in prudence and wise caution. Natural it certainly was, but not spiritual. There was no thought that the Lord had now made good his word through the prophet, but simply the reasoning of a carnal mind at enmity against him. One of the ways in which the carnal mind expresses itself is by a reasoned attempt to explain away the wondrous works and acts of God. When God has spoken plainly and expressly, it is not for us to reason, but to set to our seal that he is true, and receive with unquestioning faith what he has said. If a promise, expecting him to make it good, the skepticism of the king only serves to show how the tidings borne by the lepers had been lost on the porters, and the entire royal household had not God wrought secretly, but effectually, in the one and the other. Accordingly, we are next told, And one of his servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in this city. Behold, they are all as the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitudes of the Israelites that are consumed. And let us send and see. Verse 13. That too was of the Lord. He it was who gave the servant both courage and wisdom to remonstrate with his master. 
He knew the man he had to deal with as his sin and sea showed, reminding us at once of chapter 6, verse 10, when the king sent to see if Elisha's warning was a true one. Nothing could be lost, unless it were the horses, by pursuing the policy proposed by the servant, and much might be gained thereby. As the divine purpose could not be thwarted by the greed of the lepers, so it should not be by the skepticism of the king. It was God who gave the servant's counsel favor in his master's sight, and therefore we are told, They took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. Verse 14. God's ways and works are as perfect in their execution as they are in their devising. But be it noted that though Jehoram yielded to the solicitation of his servant, it was with some unbelief he did so, as his sending them after the host of the Syrians rather than unto their camp indicates. Nor was their errand in vain. They went after them to the Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. Verses 15 and 16 It was no temporary spasm of fear that possessed them, but a thorough and lasting one. When God works, He works effectually. And the messengers returned and told the king, And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 16. Of course it was, for no word of God's can possibly fall to the ground, since it is the word of him that cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. Men may scoff at it, kings may not believe it, even when its definite fulfillment is declared unto them, but that affects not its infallible verity. Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. 1 Kings 8, 56 Such will be the ringing testimony, individually and collectively, of the spiritual Israel, when for all eternity they shall rest in the anti-typical Canaan. It is to be noted that the prediction made through Elisha was fulfilled in no vague and mere general way, but specifically and to the letter. That, too, is recorded both for our instruction and our consolation. Sixth, its meaning. After all we have sought to bring out upon this miracle, its typical significance should, in its broad outline at least, be plain to the simplest Christian hearer. We say its broad outline for every detail in connection therewith is not to be regarded as a line in the picture. First, 
the starving Samaritans may surely be viewed as portraying of perishing sinners. They were not seeking unto God nor looking to Him for relief. So far from it, they had turned their backs upon Him and given themselves up to idolatry. They were reduced to the most desperate straits, being quite unable to deliver themselves. As such, they accurately represented the condition and position of the fallen and depraved descendants of Adam. Second, in Ben-Hadad and his hosts, who sought the destruction of the Samaritans, we have a figure of Satan and his legions who are relentlessly attempting to destroy the souls of men, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8 Third, in the divine deliverance of the famished Israelites by a miracle of sovereign mercy, we have a striking foreshadowment of the saving of God's elect. The particular aspect of the gospel here adumbrated appears in the strange means which God employed to bring about deliverance, namely, His causing the Syrians themselves to supply the food for those they had designed to be their victims. Compare Judges 14.14 Does not this remind us forcibly of that verse, that through death he might destroy him that had, as the executioner, the power of death, that is, the devil? Hebrews 2.14 As the Savior himself declared, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke 22:53. Yet by allowing the serpent to bruise his heel, he set free his captives. Incredible as it seems to the proud philosopher, it is by Christ's humiliation his people are exalted. By his poverty they are made rich. By his death they have life. By his being made a curse, all blessing comes to them. Seventh, its sequel. And the king, God working secretly in him to do so, appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God, not simply Elisha, had said who spoke when the king came down to him, and so it fell out unto him. Verses 17 to 20 Thus in due course the divine threat was executed, fulfilled, be it noted, to the very letter. Solomon indeed was this, being the awful sequel to what was before us in verses 1 and 2. In like manner, God will yet answer of the skepticism and blasphemous scoffing of this degenerate age. The great of this world may laugh at the Lord's servants now, but in eternity they shall gnash their teeth in anguish. This sequel completes the typical picture, showing as it does the doom of the reprobate. The gospel is a savor of death unto death, as well as of life unto life, 
Unbelievers will see the elect feasting with Christ as Dives saw Lazarus in Abram's bosom, but shall not partake thereof. Chapter 27 Sixteenth Miracle First, its reality. The first six verses of Second Kings 8 chronicle an incident which is rather difficult to classify in connection with the ministry of Elisha, by which we mean it is perhaps an open question whether we are to regard it as properly belonging to the miracles which were wrought through his instrumentality. Undoubtedly, the majority of Christian writers would look upon this episode rather as an example of the gracious and wondrous operations of divine providence rather than a supernatural happening. With them we shall have no quarrel, for it is mainly a matter of terms. Some define a miracle in one way, and some in another. No question of importance is involved, either doctrinal or practical. It is simply a matter of personal opinion whether this series of events are to be viewed as among the ordinary ways of the divine government, as God orders the lives of each of his creatures, and, in a more particular manner, undertakes and provides for each of his dear children, or whether we are to contemplate what is here narrated as something over and above the workings of providence. The signal deliverances which the Lord's people experience under the workings of His special providence are just as truly manifestations of the wisdom and power of God as are what many theologians would technically term His miracles and are so to be regarded by us. While strongly deprecating the modern tendency to deny and decry the supernatural, we shall not now enter into a discussion as to whether or not the day of miracles be past, but this we do emphatically insist upon, that the day of divine intervention is most certainly not past. God is as ready to hear the cry of the righteous now as he was in the time of Moses and the prophets, and to so graciously and definitely answer the prayer of faith as cannot be explained by so-called natural laws, as this writer and no doubt many of our hearers can bear witness. Whether you term his interpositions miracles or no, this is sure. The Lord still shows himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect, upright, sincere, toward him. Second Chronicles 16.9 Second, its connection. This is intimated by the opening word of our narrative. That, then, which occurs so frequently in the scriptures, should never be hurried over carelessly. There is nothing meaningless nor superfluous in God's word, and every syllable in it should be given its due force and weight. Then is a time mark 
emphasizing the season or occasion when some particular event happened. To ascertain its significance, we should always pause and ask, When? And in order to find the answer, refer back to the immediate context, often obliging us to ignore a chapter division. By so doing, we are the better enabled to perceive the connection between two things or incidents, and often the more relation the one sustains to the other, not only of cause and effect, but of antecedent and consequent. In passing, we may point out that then is one of the key words of Matthew's Gospel, with which should be linked when and from that time. See Matthew 4, 1, 17, 15, 1, 21, 25, 1, 26, 14. The deeper significance of many an incident is discovered by observing this simple rule, asking the then, when. In our present instance, the miracle we are about to contemplate is immediately linked to the one preceding it by this introductory then. There is therefore a close connection between them, yea, the one is the sequel to the other. When considering Second Kings 7, we saw how wondrously Jehovah wrought in coming to the relief of the famished Samaritans, furnishing them with an abundant supply of food at no trouble or cost to themselves, causing their enemies to supply their needs by leaving their own huge stores behind them. But as we pointed out, there was no recognition of the hand that had so kindly ministered unto them, no acknowledgment of his goodness, no praising him for such mercies. He had no place in their thoughts, for they had grievously departed from him and given themselves up to idolatry. Consequently, here as everywhere, we find inseparably connected together, unthankful, unholy. 2 Timothy 3, 2 where there is no true piety, there is no genuine gratitude, and where there is no thankfulness, it is a sure sign of the absence of holiness. This is a criterion by which we may test our hearts. Are we truly appreciative of the divine favors, or do we accept them as a matter of course? It may seem a small matter unto men whether they are thankful or unthankful for the bounties of their Maker and Provider, but He takes note of their response and sooner or later regulates His governmental dealings with them accordingly. He will not be slighted with impunity. Whether He acts in judgment or in mercy, God requires us to acknowledge His hand in the same bowing in penitence beneath his rod or offering to him the praise of our hearts. When Moses demanded of Pharaoh that he should let the Hebrews go a three days journey into the wilderness to hold a feast unto the Lord, he haughtily answered, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Exodus 5.2 But before God's plagues were finished, the magicians owned, This is the finger of God. Exodus 8.19 And the king confessed himself, I have sinned against the Lord your God. 10.16 We are expressly bidden, O give thanks unto the Lord for His goodness. Psalm 136.1 And if men break that commandment, God will visit His displeasure upon them. One of the reasons why He gave up the heathen to uncleanness was because they were unthankful. Romans 1.21 and 24 Third, its nature. God employs various methods and means in chastening an ungrateful people. Chief among his scourges are his four sword judgments, namely the sword and the famine and the noisome beast, see verse 15, and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast, Ezekiel 14:21. In the present instance, it was the second of these judgments. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Second Kings 8, 1 this we regard as a miracle, and as connected with Elisha. First, because this pronouncement was a prophecy, a supernatural revelation which he had received from God and then communicated to the woman. Second, because his announcement here is expressly said to be the saying of the man of God. Verse 2, indicating he was acting in his official character. Third, because both in verse 1 and verse 5, this incident was definitely linked with an earlier miracle, the restoring of her dead son to life. But our present miracle is by no means confined to the famine which the Lord has sent upon Samaria, nor to the prophet's knowledge and announcement of the same. We should also contemplate the gracious provision which the Lord made in exempting the woman from the horrors of it. A famine is usually the outcome of a prolonged drought with the resultant failure of the crops and the drying up of all vegetation, though in some cases it follows incessant rains which prevents the farmers from harvesting their grain. Now, had the Lord so pleased, he could have supplied this woman's land with rain, though it was withheld from her adjoining neighbors. See Amos 4, 7. Or, he could have prevented her fields from being flooded, so that her crops might be garnered. Or, in some mysterious way, he could have maintained her meal and oil that it failed not. 
1 Kings 17, 16. Yet, though the Lord did none of those extraordinary things, nevertheless he undertook for her just as effectually by his providences. Fourth, its duration. This particular famine lasted no less than seven years, which was double the length of time of the one God sent on Samaria in the days of Elijah. James 5.17 When men refuse to humble themselves beneath the mighty hand of God, He lays His rod more heavily upon them. As the successive plagues which He sent upon Egypt increased in their severity, and as the judgments mentioned in the Revelation are more and more distressing in nature. Of old, God called upon Israel, Consider your ways, and complained that his house was neglected, while they were occupied only with rebuilding and attending to their own. But they heeded him not, and accordingly he told them, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Haggai 1, 10 and 11. Thus it was now upon the rebellious and idolatrous Samaritans. Fifth, its beneficiary. This was the woman whose son Elisha restored to life. She was before us in Second Kings 4.1. There we saw that she was one who had a heart for the servant of God, not only inviting him into her house for a meal whenever he passed by her place, but built and furnished for him the prophet's chamber. Verses 8-10 to 10. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.